Good morning. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as many people sit in their homes, uh, there's a thousand things to be distracted by. Pray for those that are watching, that they would be attentive to your word. Help me, God, to be faithful and to say what you say, and not more or less. Orient us towards Christ, his kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, We find ourselves in another difficult week. Uh, We find ourselves more than likely, if estimates are proving true, which they seem to be, that we are um, in the midst of darkness and it seems as though it's going to get darker before it gets light uh, as it relates to this virus. Uh, And yet at the same time, I think it's good to know amidst this difficulty and this darkness that God is reconciling the world to himself. He is at work. And so Uh, I don't know about you, but I know for me, my temptation is to try to move through all of this as quickly as possible. I start thinking about the kind of stuff we can do just on the other side of this. But I think something that we've got to do, I've been working at this myself, is to kind of go back to what I said last week or a couple weeks ago when I said that the Lord has sort of sent us to our rooms. And like when I send my kids to their room, we want them to think about something, right? And so... Uh, I don't know exactly what the Lord is doing in these days, but I do know enough to know that he's trying to get our attention. And he is trying to have us to consider our lives before him. And if you're anything like me, you would agree that as we're sitting in our rooms, as it were, we've, we have neglected too much of him for too long. And uh, I think it's important that we be still and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen, as Mary did, that we choose the good portion that can't be taken away from us. And so if we uh, find ourselves looking at the Word this morning, which I pray you do, I hope your Bible is open to read this, this text this morning is going to get your attention pretty quickly. Um, In fact, if I had to be perfectly honest with you, in preparing the sermon this week, my temptation in reading it and coming to the conclusions of what Jesus was teaching us here, my my temptation was to round off the sharp edges of the text, to try to make it more palatable, make it more easy, more positive, because if I preach the sermon in the way that we try to do all the time here at Restoration Church, namely make the point of the passage, the point of the sermon, I'm going to probably come off as one of those revivalistic preachers that is preaching hellfire and brimstone amidst the people in fear. And I just quite frankly don't want to be that guy. However, our conscience has to be bound by the word of God. And so I'm going to be as faithful as I can to this passage and call us to it without rounding off the edges by just saying what it says and just calling us to it. And so this morning, we're going to be confronted with a clarion call of Christ wherein Jesus is going to tell us, you either take all of Jesus or you don't take him at all. Uh, And if you don't take him, then Jesus promises, we'll see this morning, he promises you'll be scattered, left to an eternity of condemnation. But if you come to him, if you gather to him, you will find eternal life. That's the message this morning. It may not be the one that you want to hear, uh, but it's, I think, the one that we need to hear. It's going to ask the question, in the midst of a lingering world that's very aware of death, are we ready to die? We're going to find that out this morning. 
Just a brief review to catch us up where we have been. If you're tuning in for the first time, it's sort of a strange place maybe to jump in. But we've been, we started the book of Luke back in September of last year. And we're just walking right through the passage. And so this is where we happen to find ourselves. Next week, we, uh, for the next month actually, we'll take a break from Luke. But uh, this is where we find ourselves. Luke 11, 14 to 36. Uh, I would encourage you to keep it in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, go to BibleGateway.com. I'm using the ESV. Uh, and you can track it. Because I want you to know, I want you guys to know, that whatever it is I'm saying, it needs to be said there. And if you have your eyes on the text, you'll be able to match the two. I don't want to go above the word, don't want to go below it. Uh, and so Luke is the author of this book that we're reading. He's a physician that, ca- that uh, traveled with the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's writing to this guy by the name of Theophilus, and by extension, us. And uh, he's writing to him, he's writing to us, so that we might have certainty regarding the things that he has taught, we have been taught about Jesus. So Christianity, friends, is not interested in easy believism. It is not interested in blind faith. Uh, we are committed to knowing the truth because as Jesus taught us, the truth we believe will set us free. And so we see here four responses to the teaching of Christ in this passage. Four responses, four kinds of people that respond to different, uh, four kinds of people that respond in different ways to Christ the King and his kingdom. Here's the first. First is the slanderer. The slanderer. So as we remember, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. He knows it. It's his life's mission. And on his way, he does as he's done in the past. You see it right there in verse 14. He casts out a mute demon from a man. And as soon as this demon comes out, the man begins to speak. And the people marvel at Jesus and what he has done. And so... uh, There's one group of people that in the midst of this, they respond by slandering Jesus. To slander is to speak a malicious lie about someone. uh, And that's what these guys are doing about Jesus. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul was a name created to describe the prince of demons, which be Satan. You can look down there in verse 18. That's what Jesus says. That's who they're talking about. Uh, basically what happened here, this, at least with this group, some people respond to Jesus as casting out demons as a sign that Jesus is not actually on God's team, but he's in fact on Satan's team. That's how they respond. They're saying that because he's done this, they're on team Satan. And so Jesus in this moment, he kind of turns into philosopher in residence at this moment. Uh, and notice that Jesus knows their thoughts without them even saying it, saying anything. And so from verse 17 down to 19, Jesus says, in essence, I'm casting out demons. How can I cast out demons and be on the same team as the demons? So he's saying sort of, if that were true, then team Satan would be a house divided. And if a house divided uh, is in fact that, then team Satan would be bent on destroying itself. That makes no sense. And then he goes on to add their sons. If their sons are casting out demons, well, then they're on team Satan too. And I'm pretty sure... They don't want to say that. And so with just some simple logic and a few lines, Jesus destroys or deconstructs the slanderous charges of some people, namely that Jesus is evil, teaching evil, doing evil. And after doing so, he then constructs an argument in its place. He deconstructs the bad argument, constructs an argument in its place. That's verses 20 to 22. When he says, but if it is... By the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that language of finger of God, that would have been familiar language to the Jews. That's the same language that's used of God when God writes the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So in other words, the finger of God language that Jesus is employing here is communicating power, the power of God. Power of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, your charge, if, you, if you're right, I would be, uh, Satan would be divided against himself. That doesn't make sense, which then only leads one other option, that the kingdom of God is here. Notice that Jesus only sees two teams. So it means, though, he's saying the truth is the kingdom of God is here. God's team, God's kingdom breaking in as is evidence, at least in this part, by sending away of demons. That leads to verses 21 to 23, when Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So he's talking about Satan there. He's that strong man, fully armed, guarding his own palace. Uh, and so Jesus calls him, as it says there, a strong man. Right? So the Bible teaches in other places that Satan is called the God of this world. And so there's no question Satan and his demons have tremendous power on the earth. Not only then, but still today. And by the way, to believe that demons are real and they are active, friends, is not the stuff of fairy tales. If you believe Jesus' words are trustworthy, which they have proven themselves to be. In other words, if you trust Jesus, if you follow Jesus, follow his words, then you know that demons are real, demons are active, and they are powerful. But good news. Jesus is more powerful. His kingdom is stronger. Look at verse 22. When one stronger, that's Christ in his kingdom, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes that strong man, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divided his spoil. So Jesus is saying, I'm the captain of the kingdom of God as is evidenced by my ability to cast out demons and as strong as those demons are, when I show up, when the spirit of God shows up, when the kingdom shows up, we reveal we are stronger than the strong man and so we bust those dudes up like paper mache. That's what he's saying. And so that leads him to his conclusion in verse 23. If you're not with me, you're against me. You're the weaker one. You're the one that gets overcome by the stronger man. If you don't gather to me, then you scatter from me in judgment. Now, last I checked, in 21st century Washington, D.C., we don't have a lot of people paying close attention to the demonic. Again, a lot of people even dismiss it as the stuff of kind of fairy tale, stuff like, yeah, we know that's not true. But friends, there are plenty of people that do slander Christ and his followers when they do as the people in the story did when they deny or denounce something that Jesus teaches as evil. When people today say that what the Bible teaches is either wrong or bad or evil, they do the same thing as these people. They charge that Christ and his word are of evil, of wickedness, doing evil, that sort of thing. We could think of a litany of things, right? The easy one would be Jesus' sexual ethic of one man, one woman. But it could also be Jesus' narrow teaching on divorce and remarriage. It could be Jesus' teaching on pride or self-righteousness or greed or even especially hell. But it could also easily be Jesus' teaching on the narrow way. People could see that as evil, as the narrow way, that he is, as he says in verse 23, the only way. In other words, if you are not for all of Jesus and you reject and you do not reject all other gods, 
then he's saying you're not with him. You're against him. And people will sometimes respond to that by saying that's evil, thinking, teaching, etc. So for instance, if I were to, just to illustrate this, if I were to go down after this pandemic and go stand in DuPont Circle and I were to read verse 23 and I just briefly, humbly, not like a jerk, briefly, humbly explain it and call people to faith and repentance. My suspicion is, is there would be a, a healthy portion of people that would probably say in some way, shape, or form that either I'm misrepresenting Jesus or I'm evil or I'm bigoted or whatever the case may be. And yet, friends, what we find here, this is the clear teaching of Jesus. Jesus is saying in verse 23, he's the only way. Only way. Either you're for him by being for all of him and all of his word, not just the ones we find that we like or what our culture likes, or you're against him. And again, there's no third category that Jesus creates here. And so while most of our city doesn't think Jesus and his followers are on team Satan, when you read through the teaching of Christ and attempt to humbly stand for all of it with love and grace and humility, it's quite possible, maybe even probable, that people will do as these people did, slander you and by extension slander Christ as teaching stuff that's evil. Equating Christ and his word to the team Satan, as it were. But we're left with this same conclusion that Jesus says. But, if it's true that Jesus really was the Son of God, if he really did teach that Christians, or what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about whatever is true, right, or good, and whatever is wrong, bad, or evil, well, then Jesus really is the King of the kingdom, and the kingdom really has come upon us. And he really is, Jesus and his kingdom really is stronger than evil. And he really does overcome the stronger man for all those that trust him. And the best place to show that overcomeness, the best place to show Christ is the kingdom, Christ, the king of the kingdom, and the kingdom is breaking in, and he really is stronger than the stronger man, the best place to show that is at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. Most notably, we see Jesus overcoming the strong man. As, you, as we read about it in Colossians 2, 14 to 15, which says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he, Jesus, set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There he is. There's the, Jesus, the stronger man, destroying the power of evil on the cross. And therefore, you can escape, friend, the judgment of God for slandering the teaching of the Son of God by doing, as it says there in verse 23, by gathering to him, by coming to him. And you ask, well, how do I do that? Well, friend, by repenting of the sin of slandering Christ in his word and by believing him, by trusting that he can and will forgive you, be brought back into the fold. By repenting and believing Christ as King and Lord, you gather to him, the stronger one, who defends are all of my sin, your sin, Satan, and death in the resurrection. Because once you do that, you receive him, you're gathered to him, you're forgiven, you're in the family, and the kingdom has come upon you. When that happens, nothing and no one can overcome you because Christ is the stronger man. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But friend, if you choose not to repent, not to believe on Christ, then you open up to what we read about there in verse 24 to 26. You open up yourself to demons or evil to take your life and make it their home. 
And even if you find a way to get out of that evil in some way, shape, or form, then we read there, Jesus says, more demons can make their way back and dwell in you, making your life even worse than it was before. And friend, I want you to notice, look at the passage, just take a look at it for yourself. What do evil and demons do to people? When we think back to our study of Luke, we can think of what evil and demons did to Legion, how they made him be isolated, right? Living in a cemetery by himself. We can think back to when Jesus came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, when uh, the demons were, were uh, possessed by a, a boy that was convulsing and throwing himself on the fire, trying to destroy him. We can look here how demons made this man mute to not give him a voice. Or we can even see here how Jesus teaches that evil demons want to possess you as their house. They seek to isolate you, destroy you, shut you up. Friends, the reality is, if we're going to follow the teaching of Christ, spiritual warfare is real. It's real. Jesus shows us that it is. The only way out of being destroyed by evil and demons is to look to the stronger man, to be gathered to him in faith. Look to Jesus who disarmed Satan on the cross. Look to Jesus who is stronger than evil. Look to Jesus who speaks the truth and gives us freedom. Acknowledge then, friend, your unbelief. Acknowledge that slander. Turn away from it Turn and turn to Christ and be gathered to him so that you might have the opposite. You might have community. You might have eternal life. You might have a true and lasting voice. You might have a home in heaven. Friend, this hour is exposing us to the reality of evil in the world. Don't be against Jesus. Don't be scattered from Jesus. Be gathered to him by repenting and believing and trusting on him. That's the first response we see from this casting out of the mute, uh, demon of the mute man. Second response is those that misunderstand Jesus. Those that misunderstand the teaching of Jesus. We see that in verses 27 and 28. Uh, such a sweet response there. I can imagine this woman, when she's referencing, you know, saying blessed is the woman that bore you and all this. I'm imagining this is a well-intentioned woman. She's sort of like, amen, brother. You know, maybe trying to lessen the, the heat of the argument. Everybody's kind of feeling odd now. Uh, she's, this woman is calling the woman we know to be Mary blessed because, simply because she was Jesus' mother. I don't think here that Jesus intends to rebuke the woman as he does in the other cases. I do think, though, Jesus means to correct her. This woman misunderstands who the blessed ones are. She seems to limit who the true and blessed ones are. Namely, she thinks the blessed ones are those that are related to Jesus. She's sort of thinking like kings of old. Like, you know, this guy had this king, and so therefore, he, because he's related to them, therefore they're in the kingdom and they're blessed, as opposed to all the peasants that are not born by them. That's how she's thinking. As if to say that, they, that, that, that somehow Mary is set above everyone else in some ways, that they can't be blessed by. We can think about this today, like Roman Catholicism continues to purport this error, right? They, Roman Catholic Church would teach that uh, Mary was born without sin. They would teach, teach you that you should pray to Mary so she can intercede for you. Uh, you see statues of Mary. They continue this same thing, this misrepresentation that Christ corrects right here. And of course, the reality is, it's easy to be forgotten, Mary is blessed. 
She most definitely is blessed. She is a godly sister in Christ that we should be so thankful for. But friends, the point that Jesus is making is is that everyone is blessed that is in Christ. That's Jesus' whole point. Anyone is that is in Christ that loves the word and lives for the word is blessed. So we can, do, we can make the same mistakes today of misunderstanding the teaching of Christ. We might say today, while we might not say that about uh, Jesus' mother, we might say that the blessed ones are the people in vocational ministry. Like, because I'm a pastor, therefore I'm more blessed. We might make that mistake. We might say that the blessed ones are those that really serve the poor a lot, the ones that are super sincere in their faith or whatever. But what Jesus is telling us here, friends, is that the happy ones, the blessed ones, are anyone, anyone that loves the words of Christ, that studies it, that listens it, that sings it, that prays it. And then, as is evidence of that, they then do it. They live it out. And so, friend, don't misunderstand who the blessed ones are in relation to the teaching of Christ. The blessed ones are those, anyone, that love the word and live the word. They love it, and then they live it out. Right? We can think of what Jesus taught, right? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So it's not enough just to love the word, right? Pharisees love the word. You've got to live it out. And if you love it, the word, love Christ, his teaching, and live it out, you're a blessed one with Mary. Isn't that good news? No matter who you are, whether you're a man or a woman, a stay-at-home mom or a car mechanic, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're from Hungary or from Iran, you're a blessed one. You're a blessed one. So don't misunderstand Jesus as to who the blessed ones are. The blessed ones are those that love the word and live out all of Jesus' word, which leads to the third response, the third group. That is those that are skeptics of that word. So you have the slanders of Christ and his word, his teaching. You have the, those that misunderstand him. And then you have the skeptics. Now, when I say skeptics, let me be clear about this. I am not saying those that are trying to get underneath the word. Those that are trying to understand the word. Questions, you should know this, friend. Questions in the Christian church are not only welcome, they're encouraged. We can think about, right, who did we say Luke is writing this to? Theophilus. So that he might have certainty. And he's gathering many witnesses to give us this. So it's okay to ask questions. If you're trying to seek to understand, that's okay and even encouraged in the Christian faith. What Jesus is denouncing here is those that not are trying to get under the word, that are trying to understand the word. He's denouncing skeptics that are trying to stand over the word in judgment. Those that are unwilling to submit to Christ unless he proves himself worthy. That's what we mean by skeptics here. And if you look back in verse 16, there was another group of people that responded to Jesus' casting out of the demons. You catch that? There was two groups. We got the misunderstanding that came after that. But in verse 16, we saw there was the slanderers. But then in verse 16, there was another group. There was the skeptics. You can see it there. To test him, they kept seeking from him a sign from him. So Jesus already addressed the slanderers. So we worked through that. And now in verses 29 to 32, he addresses the skeptics. And notice he's doing this, verse 29, when the crowds were increasing. So Jesus was marveled at by the crowds. He still is today. But he was very well aware of the fact that the crowds didn't actually love him. They liked to be entertained by him. In some ways, they liked to be affirmed by him. But they didn't actually love him for him. And so it was common practice then for Jesus, as these crowds would come, 
that he would say stuff that would thin the crowds, thin the crowds out. I mean, if we think about the presence of the crowd. Many people love the Sermon on the Mount. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not an easy sermon when the crowds are coming around. So when crowds would come, Jesus would say stuff to expose people as to where they really were. So in that sense then, friend, in that sense, these words of clarity and condemnation, they are a kind and merciful gift from Christ. See, it's easy to see the harshness of Jesus' words when he's talking about condemnation. But friend, remember, he didn't have to say anything. He could have just left those crowds. But because he was kind and merciful, he warned them. And listen, he warns us too. Knowing the crowds would be thinned out. Jesus did not see crowds as his success. He wanted the truth. So he says in verse 29, in essence, you guys seek a sign. This is the skeptics he's addressing. You guys seek a sign, but I ain't going to give you one. Except one. The sign of Jonah. Jesus was unwilling to bow the knee to the arrogance of humanity that stood in judgment over him and his words. And so Jesus wasn't going to try out for their team. Right? He, he didn't need their affirmation. He wasn't going to grovel. After all, he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The very fact that Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh in the first place was an enormous act of love and humility and kindness. And he was not going to let them put him up on the docket to be questioned, to be proven. So instead, Jesus did what he often did. He turned the tables on him and he put them up on the docket and he stood in the place of the judge administering their penalty. And that leads him into those two illustrations that were meant to be signs of judgment upon the Jews. And even by extension, us today, as we'll see. Verse 30, here's the first illustration of this. Verse 30 says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now Jonah, if you know, he's an Old Testament prophet back in the first half of the Bible. Jonah was the reluctant Old Testament prophet who was sent by God to the Gentile people of Nineveh. The sign that Jonah was and gave to those Ninevites involved two things. The first one was, as he was known by the Ninevites to be as good as dead, having been swallowed by a fish. The second thing that was his sign was he had been mercifully de delivered out of that fish by God in order to come to Nineveh and call them to repentance, that they would escape condemnation and be saved. And by God's amazing grace, they did. The Ninevites did repent and believe. And they were, to use the language of verse 23, they were gathered to God, escaping condemnation. So when Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man, that he, right, Jesus, Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man, says himself, the Son of Man, that he will be like Jonah, what he means to say is exactly what he says in the parallel account of Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Matthew's another account in the Gospels of the New Testament of Jesus' life and ministry. And here's what he says in, of the same events, Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus is doing there is he's predicting, he's prophesying his death and resurrection. This would be a great sermon for next week, right? For Easter, but 
Here Jesus is telling them of his forthcoming resurrection from the dead and therein then the call to repentance and salvation that is made possible because of it. So the sign of Jonah that the Jews will get is the sign of his defeat of sin and death in the resurrection. And like Jonah to the Ninevites, Jesus calls this evil generation to faith in his resurrection and call them to repent of their sin that put him to death in the first place so that they too would escape condemnation and be saved like those Ninevites. That's what he's saying. But look at verse 32. Jesus knows they're not going to do that. The men of Nineveh, he says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching, the preaching of Jonah. That's what Jesus is doing. He's preaching. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And if you go down, if you look into the passage that we'll look at in a month, 37 to 54, he launches into all these woes on this generation. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jonah was resurrected of sorts. He came preaching faith and repentance and the Gentile Ninevites repented and believed and were saved. And Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus is saying, is greater than Jonah. Therefore, because that evil generation was unwilling to listen to his preaching and believe, then the Ninevites will rise up and judge them. And as if all of that is not enough, Jesus moves into another. He digs the knife a little deeper in verse 31. The queen of the south, he says, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here, he says. Jesus is bringing out the heavy artillery, right, on these guys. Jesus uses yet another Old Testament testimony of another Gentile. He's looking at 1 Kings chapter 10. In the Old Testament, where the famously wise King Solomon, who was the king of Israel, the son of David, who was so wise that a queen from far away, Jesus says that she came from the ends of the earth. She came all the way there to hear his wisdom, to hear his preaching. Again, in both accounts, Jesus is referencing the preaching, a teaching of the word. Jesus is emphasizing that it was a high cost for a Gentile queen to come to Solomon. But why did the queen come? Because she wanted to hear his wisdom. She wanted to come underneath the wisdom, the teaching of Solomon. And Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he and his kingdom are greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon, and yet Gentile people from far away were willing to come and listen to their preaching and to repent and to believe and to follow the Lord. But these Jews who have access to the king of kings and have been told that this was going to happen. They know this. This He's now there in their front yard and yet it's still not good enough for them. Show me another sign, Jesus. They need Jesus to prove something to him, to them, instead of them receiving Jesus. And therefore Jesus says, believing Gentiles of old and Jesus will stand over this evil generation in judgment for their unwillingness to bend the knee to Christ and his word. Jesus will later say of these Jews in Luke 16, 31, 
But if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should someone rise from the dead. Reminding us, again, friends, that Jesus was very comfortable with the authority of Scripture. We see that in Jonah. We see that in Solomon, the story of Solomon. We see it right there, Moses and the prophets. So Jesus was comfortable. I know we think it's crazy that a guy could live in a fish for three days and come out. Jesus seemed to be fine with it. He seemed to be fine with demons. Fine with the authority of Scripture. And he knows, Jesus knows, that as the testimony of Scripture, the resurrection from the dead is not going to convince these guys to change. And so the next verse, verse 33, is meant to be an illustration of all of this. Jesus' teaching, he's saying, is a lamp. It's a light. He's not hiding his teaching under a basket. He's putting up for all the world to see. We know that his resurrection will be right in public. And so, he says, verse 34, your eyes better be healthy enough to see it. See the light. Because if not, your whole body will be dark. So that verse is so important. In verse 34, there, when he says, verse 35, therefore, be careful. Like when the word goes out, Christ, the teaching of Christ, be careful. Lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, the teaching is right up. He's saying it's right here. I, it, guys, even right now in this moment as I'm preaching to you, I'm pr- trying to explain this as clearly as I can. Be careful that by seeing, you may not see, even though light is right in front of you. In other words, you might be inoculated with the Bible. Get enough of it to not actually take it. And so here, therein, is the connection to us. Jesus said that the blessed ones are the ones that hear the word of God and keep it. Those that listen to the teaching of Christ and live it out. They live and they love it and they try to live it out. They try to get underneath it. And here Jesus is saying that he and his kingdom is greater than those stories of old because he and his kingdom are the ones those stories pointed to. So he's saying you reject him, you reject his word, then you stand to receive a greater condemnation because of your proximity to the truth. But listen, the reality is, friends, we are not the Jews of the first century, right? But we are very similar to them in this way. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us in Western cultures grew up in close proximity to the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compare this to, say, Afghanistan or parts of India. They've They may have heard pieces of this. They've never heard this. They don't don't have the same kind of proximity like most of us have had. Most philosophers today, Christian and non-Christian alike, were saying that in in America in particular, we're living in a post-Christian America. That doesn't mean that everybody before us was Christian, but just what it does mean is that in the generations before, there used to be some advantages to be considered a Bible-believing Christian. We can think about pastors and churches. They were the kind of heart of the civic life of their communities. And as a result, most of us, not all of us, but most of us grew up hearing these stories. Most of us grew up hearing these truths. Right? We all know, my guess is, even before uh, this sermon, most all of you knew the sign of Jonah before I even preached this. Maybe you didn't know it was the sign of Jonah, but you've at least heard Jesus was a king and he rose from the dead. You've probably heard that before. Few people watching this live stream didn't already know that. We can think about next week. Historically, if we could gather, the churches would be full because that's what most people are just taught to do. That's what they've always done. We have been, to use Jesus' words, we've had plenty of Moses and the prophets. 
Plenty of teaching from the Bible. And so our generation in that way is similar, not the same, but similar to first century Israel that have been taught Moses and the prophets. And yet, before this pandemic, our society has increasingly stood over Jesus and his words like these skeptics in the story. Telling Jesus and his word to do a jig. Prove it. Then I'll follow you. And we've kind of heard this stuff before. Are you guys still talking about stuff like that? Demons, resurrection from the dead, guy in a fish? Come on, man, we're, we're past that. But, but, but maybe if you sort of convince me enough, maybe I'll choose to follow some of that. That's sort of the spirit. Right? We, we think about this teaching of one generation believes the gospel, the next generation assumes the gospel, the third generation confuses the gospel, and the fourth generation abandons the gospel. I think most would say we're somewhere in that two to three to four stage of assuming or confusing or abandoning. In other words, friends, the light of the gospel for most of us has been set up on a stand. So I wonder, are you seeing it? Are you seeing the word? Or in seeing it, are you not seeing it? Do you remain either slanderous of Jesus Namely, you sort of think some of his teaching is evil in some way. Maybe you wouldn't use those words, but that's sort of in essence what's going on. Or do you remain skeptical, which is to say you stand over in judgment of Christ's teaching in the word in some way. Are you unwilling to repent and believe and follow Christ, even when it's uncomfortable? That is, do you think that you're better or above the teaching of the gospel of Jesus? Well, friend, if so, you can see that such a posture is as old as the Bible itself. Jesus addressed this posture some thousands of years ago. It's not new. And I today, friend, have the unenviable task to tell you, like Jonah of old, that unless you turn from self-righteousness, repent and follow Jesus, you stand to receive condemnation. I think I mentioned at the top end of the sermon, that's one of the reasons I want to round off this sermon. I get no joy in saying that. But if I loved you, and if I love Jesus, and I want to love my neighbor, and I know these things to be true, then I would be a terrible person if I didn't tell you that, call you to that. So this is me trying to love you by telling you that, about that condemnation. And that's what I mean by the reality of death, right, in this coronavirus. It's lingering around us. So I just wonder, it's a hard question. I don't like this question. Are you ready to die? Have you thought about your appointment with God, your posture towards him now while you have time to turn and love? Have you considered where you stand with Christ in the teaching of his word? Jesus predicted with great specificity that he would be handed over by his people to be crucified and resurrected for the sin of those that love him. And the sign of Jonah came and most of the people that were nearest to Jesus, the ones that even saw his miracles, that knew about his resurrection, most of them didn't believe. And not only did they not receive him, many clamored to put him up on the cross. And these were Bible people. These were moral people. Way more moral than probably me or you. And so friend, don't believe that all you need is one more sign. Those people got the best sign and they rejected Jesus when he was up close and personal. 
And so with that sign of the resurrection, with the sign of Jesus' defeat of sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection, my, my, what Jesus is calling you to, my call to you is, is to ask for mercy, to see the light, to get up under the light, not stand over it, to see it, treasure it, come underneath it. Doesn't mean you have to have all the answers now, but you, your, your posture of your soul is to get underneath it, to love the word, live the word, instead of standing over it in judgment. Plead for mercy that God would give you a heart bent towards his word, that you might be one of the blessed ones that hear the word of God, that believe the word of God and live it out because you love Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross and in the resurrection. That's the prayer of our church is that you would be among the blessed. That's why we're here. It's why we teach this stuff. We could easily kind of give you other stuff, but we believe this stuff, especially in this time, is on the top of people's minds. We want to be truthful and serve you in this. We want you to be among those that hear and believe. And that's the fourth and final response to this mute man. That you're a blessed one. That you believe. That you believe. You believe and you become among the number that has the stronger man come upon you. The greater Jonah. The greater Solomon. It is our prayer that you would not only would not be scattered from Christ, but instead be gathered to him. Because you believe that he defeated sin at the cross and in the resurrection. And therefore, because you believe that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None. And if that's you, if you want to do that this morning, like you're coming to the realization that you have been the skeptic, you have been the slender, and you want to be the blessed one, listen, call the friend that invited you to this live stream. If you don't have anybody to call, Joey, I think, said there's a link on there for you to get in touch with us. We'd love to help you see what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be one of the blessed ones, to live in the freedom of his word. Difficult though it is. And so let me finally end up briefly by speaking to you, the blessed ones. The ones that have repented and believe and are trusting in Christ and have had the kingdom brought near. Let me speak to you just briefly. I want to tell you two things. The first thing I want to tell you is because of the grace of God in your life, The kingdom of God has come upon you in that he has given you light and life. And as it says there in verse 36, then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. It will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives, gives you light. There it is. That's what you have in you, light to see and to treasure. You may not always like it. You may be trying to figure it out. That's okay. But you want to come on it because you have repented and believe you're a blessed one. And so therefore, here's the first thing I want to say. Rejoice. Rejoice. Christ is the resurrection and the life. You now have life. You don't have to fear COVID-19. You, in Christ, have defeated sin and death. Therefore, you can be a person of hope in the midst of this darkened and perilous world. Some of you know that I have had a fear of dying as a result of something that's happened in my life. And when that happened to me, and as I've struggled with that sometimes sinful fear, the verse that has been most helpful to me is Hebrews 2, 14 to 16, which says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Listen to this. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Again, note the the posture of the power of Satan, who might destroy, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is. The stronger man came in and beat the strong one, Satan. For surely, it says, for surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus not helping angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's you. It's me. Beloved, Jesus has won on your behalf. There's nothing to fear. Jesus helps us, and so look to his resurrection in life. Rejoice in it. This leads to the second thing I want to leave you with, the blessed ones that respond to Jesus. Rejoice, and second one, secondly, be blessed by daily hearing the word of God and keeping it. Verse 28, you rejoice, and then you daily, this goes back to the Lord's Prayer, right? Daily, trying to receive daily provision. Daily, hear the word and keep the word. Verse 28, come up under that blessing. Enjoy that blessing by getting underneath the word. Or as it says there in verse 23, friend, daily wake up and come near to Jesus. Gather with Jesus. Come to Jesus that you might learn to pray. It's praying that so much for our church that in this season, if we do nothing else, we learn how to pray. Come to Jesus and get up underneath his word that you might live the word, not only for yourself, but for the glory of God and the good of your neighbor, that they might see hope in you and they might come to rejoice, that they might be one of the blessed ones that Jesus speaks of. And soon enough, friend, we will be out of this valley of the shadow of death. And catch this, how about this for a thought? And we will not only see the sign of Jonah, we will get to experience it ourselves. How about that? Romans 8. We will rejoice in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, worshiping and enjoying a resurrected Savior forever. Get this, together, in person. So don't slander Christ and his teaching is evil. Don't, don't misunderstand him. Don't be skeptical of him and his word, but instead, be blessed. Come to his word, come to Christ, gather to him, Get under it that you might then live it out. And then there, friend, you will know joy, you will know peace, and you will know life everlasting because Christ has defeated death. And that gives us reason to be very, very hopeful in these days. And so let's pray to him now and give thanks to him. Jesus, you are life. God, forgive us for the ways in which I know that I, even I have in some ways struggled or have been skeptical towards the word at times. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, God, that you have given me an invitation. You've given every blessed one an invitation. Every sinner that is repenting and believing, you've given every invitation. Thank you, Jesus, that because of your defeating sin and death in the resurrection, you've given an invitation for all of us to come to you, to gather to you every day. So teach us to rejoice that you've overcome our worst fear and teach us to then come up underneath your word so that we might enjoy your kingdom forever. May we be the kinds of people that are people of hope. May we be seen as the happy ones, the blessed ones that love your word and live your word out for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbor. We pray this in the stronger man's name, the one that overcomes, Jesus the Christ. Amen. God bless you guys.